G'day, Glenn. How are you, mate? Pretty fantastic, mate. Better every day. Yeah, it's Friday afternoon and I thought I'd just give you a buzz and we'll relax a little bit. There's nothing pressing to talk about today. So what do you want to talk about? Actually, I'd like to find out about more of what drives Mike. Get a bit of history and I know you've got 47,256 stories. <laughs> and that's, that's only just the introduction. Yeah. We'll get a bit of depth. No, I'd love to. Uh, I'm Oh, good question. What can we tie it into now? I really feel that this is laying down a historical thing. From some of the stories you've told me, you've been telling me things about how we got in this situation, how we even got here, where it all happened, and what even raised your suspicions. You started questioning the system. You started going, it doesn't add up. What's going on here? And I think if we take that question of why, why are we in this situation? Why did we get here? And what were some of the discoveries you made along the path? And I know some of the things you went into, you went into the Air Force. Yeah, that'd be good. What, what got you to the Air Force? And then we can unwrap it from there and then unfold the discovery of what got you questioning the system and then started recognizing, well, hang on, this is where we're at. Why are we here where we're here? And hmm. you started discovering things even before I was drawing breath. Why well, don't I start with me enrolling in the Air Force? I joined the Air Force in 1965 yeah. and took the train down with a few of the other blokes and we ended up at Elizabeth, I forget the name of the Air Force base down there in South Australia. But I went through my rookies. Pardon me for asking stupid questions, but I'm going to ask a lot of them because nothing is obvious to the uninformed. What's rookies? Rookies is where you go through your basic training after you join the military. Oh, yeah. so you learn how to march and how to make your bed and polish your boots and fire a rifle and put up with going into a room full of gases and all sorts of stuff. So it was interesting, but it was also very grueling and hard. But that was designed to toughen us up. And by the time we finished passing out, as they call it, graduating. Yeah, not from um, alcohol or anything, but. <laughs> yeah, we were pretty tough. We went in there all long haired, and some of us were, and shaggy and very unpolished stones and when we came out we were pretty hard uh, but after i graduated they sent me off to lavatt in victoria where i joined about 35 other blokes and we started studying to be tells ops that means tele telegraphic operators yeah okay and we went through that part and then as we were doing the course they were assessing our abilities and at the end of the course i think there was probably about eight or ten of us left who were singled out and we were then graduated on to become telegraphists now the tells ops were it was a pretty easy job but being a telegraphist was a lot tougher and we had to learn things like how to do encryption morse code oh, yeah. now i started doing morse code and when i first heard it the instructor said this is what you'll sound like at the end of the course and he went <clears throat> and i listened to that and I, what <laughs> he said that's morse code at 32 words a minute now, 32 words a minute is a pretty high speed. Wow. Yeah. We practiced away. We learned how to type A, S, D, G, H, J, K, L, and all the rest of But when we learned it, it was on those old Remington typewriters with the with a steel thing out the top of the fingerboard so you couldn't see what you were typing. So you had to learn touch typing. Oh, wow. And this has stood me in very good stead all my life. I've always done jobs where I needed to be a fast typist. And when my kids were growing up, my daughters would come in and start talking to me while I was working. 
and I'd be typing away and I'd be talking to them, typing away at the same time and answering their questions. And my daughters would go, Dad, how do you do that? And I said, what? She said, you're typing away there really fast and you're talking to me at the same time. And I thought, yeah, it's just that's the way I was trained. Probably, I would say, it's the multitasking, your ability to do music as well, play the fiddle, play musical instruments. They're mm. very left and right brain hemisphere activities. And when you're playing the keyboards, you're playing the keyboards, you're reading, you're doing this, you're talking to people, you're singing. That's multitasking at its best in that sense. And really what you're demonstrating to me there is talking to someone while you're typing. It's much like you playing the keyboards and singing and various yeah. other things. Because your hemispheres are doing different things. You've got left hemisphere, right hemisphere. And, and so that's really powerful stuff, isn't it? It really gets some people. Yeah, it is. So out of the, I think, eight or nine of guys that started out on the telegraphist course, only five of us graduated. And to this day, we all keep in touch. In fact, a couple of years ago, we went to a reunion and late last year, actually, I went down to the snow and on the way back, I stayed at one of my mate's places there on his farm. Mm -hmm. And another one of our mates from the course came down as well. So we had a good old get together. Uh, and this is one of the great things about the military. It breeds this, this mateship that you just don't get in any other job, not to the same extent anyway. So when I graduated, they posted me to Werribee Aerial Farm, where I was trained to do things like tune these really big radio transmitters and receivers and stuff like that. And we had all these aerials spread around this huge farm. And so every time it rained, we got a really good crop of mushrooms. Because we were such a small base, we didn't have a mess, what they call it, the kitchen. So we had to cook for ourselves. So we used to order in all these steaks and all this other stuff that we really liked. And we'd go out mushroom hunting and bring them back. And we had huge feasts. It was great. Magic. Yeah. We're about 10 minutes in, and I've just had a thought for those people who are watching this and want a bit of an overview. We're going to be talking about why these are important. Just give a big picture overview of, say, then I went to here, and then I went to there, and then I went to here. And just a few teasers for people who are watching that can say, okay, it's worth hanging on for another half an hour, because there's a lot of great stories, and they all unfold this a huge adventure that I think probably one day will have to be turned into a matrix for version five or something. Yeah, there are a lot of stories. After I got out of the Air Force is another story. And yeah, there's all sorts of things. But getting back to the Air Force, then I, from Werribee, I was sent to officer training school. I wasn't being trained as an officer, but I was in the communication center there. And I was doing a lot of encryption work that in that place. And then they posted me to Northeast Thailand during the Vietnam War. And that's where things really started to go haywire because before I was very gung-ho, I believed in the government, I believed in the war, I thought we were doing a great thing over there. And then I went over there and that really opened my eyes. I had gone to high school in Penang in Malaysia, so I wasn't exactly a newbie to Asia. But going over there in the Air Force and about everything over there, it was really pretty terrifying. So when I was posted to, um, I took off on a Hercules C-130 plane from uh, Richmond in Western Sydney. Yeah. We flew up to Darwin. It was a really long trip, very noisy. This wasn't comfortable flying. We were on little seats along the side, webbing seats. On the webbing seats, yeah. Yeah, with all the equipment in front of us. So we were pretty cramped up and we couldn't talk to each other because there was so much noise. 
So we got to Darwin, came out, and my ears were ringing, had an overnighter there, jumped on the plane again the next morning and flew up to Butterworth in Malaysia, northwest part of Malaysia. Uh, then we had another overnighter there, and then we took off the next day, and I looked out the window as we took off, and two Sabre jets tucked themselves under the wings of the plane as we flew into Thailand because Thailand did not allow the RAAF to have planes in their territory because of political reasons. Yeah. So we had to sneak them in. Sneak them under the radar. But... Which was very lucky, really, because those guys, they did a fantastic job protecting the base where we were, helping the Americans spot the Viet Cong and the Thai Cong. And so when we arrived in Ubon, we went for a debrief. And while we're being debriefed, one of the gadgies, the area defence guards, came in and said, oh, we've just uncovered seven mortars at the end of the runway pointed at strategic points in the American and RAAF bases. Yeah. So uh, the Taikon could have just run in, dropped their mortars, and away they went into the jungle. So this is a new term to me because, I, like I said to you the other day when you were telling me this, the first time I've ever heard of Taikon, and I was brought up on a healthy dose of Hogan's Heroes and MASH and various shows like that, which you get a sanitised version of everything. And you think you're watching history, but you're watching a story. Yeah, it's a story that you don't really get the depth of the truth from the real people who were there. You get a, you get a story. And so I never heard the term Tai Kong. Hmm. Yeah. Well, there was Thai Kong, there was Viet Cong, there was Lao Kong. Oh. All through, there were communists. Yeah. Yeah. Then during the debrief, we were told we were confined to base for two weeks so that we could acclimatize. And then they gave us the medical introduction. And they told us there's a, a lot of bars in town and they've got all these girls in there, but they're probably riddled with diseases. And they gave us graphic descriptions of these horrible looking diseases. And you think, oh, dear me, I'm not sure I want anything to do with that. So at the end of two weeks, we were free to go out. My first night out, I went to this bar, it was called <laughs> the Playboy Club. And it looked nothing like the Playboy Club, I can assure you. It was a big tin barn, be about the size of half a football field, packed to the gills with thousands of American airmen. And for one quarter of it up the back was a mezzanine floor where the Air Force, RAAF, were. So we're sitting up there drinking and having a good old time listening to the Thai band. Funnily enough, they, they are now huge superstars in Thailand. Yeah. And they're really good. But we're sitting there and then this young girl comes and plumps herself on my knee. She was a Laotian girl, skinny little thing called Joy. And we're drinking and having a good old time and laughing and joking. And all of a sudden, she pulls this big knife out of her bag and jumps up and screams, i kill you! And I'm, like, oh, I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> she jumps over the, the mezzanine floor onto the tables below and runs through the crowd chasing this yank, saying, i kill you, i kill you, i kill you! And uh, we're all sitting there laughing our heads off, and going, gee, what was that? Anyway, about 20 minutes later, she comes back, and she sits down on my lap again, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm not so sure I want this. Anyway, I said, what happened there? She said, oh, last night he sleep with me, he no pay. I said, oh, yeah? She said, now he pay. I said, you won't have that problem with me, darling, because I'm not taking you. We work 24 hours on and 48 hours off. Uh, hang on. Now, you're referring to work here. 
the average viewer is listening to this going, what are you talking about? You mean like a 24-hour shift, not a 12-hour shift, but a 24-hour shift, yep. and then two two days off, and then back to 24-hour shift again. Yep. Yeah, yep. We'll, get, we'll get the main details here as to what you started to learn about what made you suspect that the system wasn't like we're we're often alluded to the matrix today like we're all told oh the matrix blah 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 and is telling us we live in this blah 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 and people are starting to understand that the whole thing is scripted or it's been manipulated it's not really true it's what's going on consequently we talk about red pills and we talk about blue pills and for those of you those who don't know the red pill analogy comes from the film called the matrix where Neo has been given that option to take the red pill or the blue pill. And the blue pill means he goes back into normal thing and doesn't know any different. And the red pill starts to wake up. And this is where you started waking up on your own. You were going, hang on, things are just not. Yeah, maybe I should describe the base a little bit. Yeah, that'd uh, be good. Yeah, we, we were on at a place called Ubon Ratatani in northeast Thailand, up near the Laotian border, about 50 kilometers away from Laos. And it was a huge base, and they had these F-4C Phantom jets, which were the fighter bombers. And it was during Operation Rolling Thunder, where the Americans from all sorts of bases in Vietnam and Thailand were flying these jet bombers over to North Vietnam and just carpet bombing the place. I don't know how the North Vietnamese survived, honestly. But every 10 to 20 minutes, there'd be a flight of 7 to 10 F-4C Phantoms taking off. And they were noisy because they had afterburners on. Now, those afterburners at nighttime, probably 50 or 60 feet out behind the plane. Yeah. So they're taking off and you've got this enormous roar. So a lot of us went deaf while we were up there. Huh? What? <laughs> 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 yeah. It was made worse because our base was no more than 150 meters away from oh, the runway. God. And we used to go out and play football next to the fence along the runway. And we'd see planes coming back all shot up. I saw one come in, his undercarriage on one side was all shot up. So as he landed, he only had two wheels instead of three. And so when he came in, he tried to hold it steady, but he couldn't. So the plane went like that. And as he went over, the bombardier ejected and he's injected into a pole. Boom. That was him gone. Mm. And then as the plane went over, the pilot ejected into the runway. He was just a smear of blood down the runway. Mm. The plane came to a stop and yeah, that was bloody awful. That happened right in front of my eyes. Another night, it was pay night. So we were playing cards at 3 a.m. Yeah. And another plane came in with a missing front wheel landed and careered down the runway and hit the about a kilometer and a half uh, from where he landed and the landing spot was near our base so he was about a good kilometer and a half away and he hit the ammo dump and boom <laughs> and we had bits of shrapnel coming down on our roof we were in tin huts and so the shrapnel's coming through the hut and ready to get under the beds and our camp doctor sat up and just as he did, about a foot and a half wide piece of fuselage came through the roof and hit his pillow where his head had been a moment before. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was pretty hairy. Wow. But on pay nights, I used to go over to the Yank base quite often and play cards and meet the Yanks over there. And I started hearing stories about what was really going on. And they started talking about the industrial complex. And I'm thinking, what's that? And I started realizing that this whole war 
had nothing to do with democracy or beating communism. It was all about giving the military industrial complex something to do and a way to make money. And by the time I went back home after six months service up there, I had my eyes open and I realized this whole thing was a farce. Mm. And what really annoyed me was there was thousands of Americans and quite a few thousand Australians died in that war for nothing. I just want to take a quick break to tell you about Dick Yardley's book. These are the guys who wrote the Constitution for us, and they would be horrified at what the politicians have done. They have committed crimes and treason unparalleled in history. So take a look at Dick's book on right now and then get your own copy. It's well worth it. Dick Yardley's book, Australian Political and Religious Leaders, Treason, Treachery and Sabotage. Dick exposes how Whitlam, Hawke, Keating, Goss, Rudd and all the other Fabians have destroyed our manufacturing and agriculture. If you want to know exactly how they have done it, get Dick's book at advanceaustralia.com.au and click on Merchandise. Knowledge is power. Get the power to fight the corruption today. And we were forced to go up there because they brought in a lottery. Oh, yes. If you were born on a certain date and your marble came out, you were in the military, whether you liked it or not. Now, I volunteered because I didn't want to go in the army. And my father, having been in the Air Force, I thought, I'll join the Air Force. Brilliant. So that's what happened. And by the time I got back home to Australia, I had already been, I suppose you'd say, radicalized. And I realized there was a lot more going on behind the scenes. So I'll tell you about that the next one, mate. Yeah, yeah. We've gone on a bit long here. Oh, no, only 25 minutes, maybe another five or six minutes. But yeah, um, so right. just got a question then. Yeah. The base that you were on, you were in a shared base with the Americans and others. Was the UK there or New Zealanders? Was there this whole base full of Americans and spots for other others? No, not that I recall. We, the Australians and the Americans were the only ones there. Oh, wow. We did have people. We had Bob Hope and Anne Margaret came over to entertain us. I was there for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Bob Hope was a funny bugger. But we did have Australian Army commandos used to come out of the jungle. Yeah. They'd go into Laos and Cambodia hunting down the Viet Cong. And because what the Viet Cong did was, because the Americans were in South Vietnam, it was very hard for them to support the South Vietnamese Cong. So they had to come through Laos and Cambodia. Yeah. So these guys used to go out into the jungle hunting them down. They'd go out in the jungle looking all spruce and come back a couple of weeks later. Oh, oh looking. You see they'd been through it, yeah. Yeah, very strong-minded, very, yeah. The thousand-yard stare. Ooh. You know what that is? Staring at goats. The th no, the thousand-yard stare is what happens to somebody who goes to war and you can see this look where they're just looking thousands of yards away and just, oh. What have I seen? Thank That's you. saluting to PTSD, really. It's, an, it it's a modern-day label that they put on post-traumatic stress yes. disorder. For those people yeah. who don't understand what PTSD is, it's a traumatised experience that you're still carrying from an event like what you've been through, like yes. that doctor. Like, he, he gets up off his bed and the thing goes smash into his bed and it could have been his head. And the trauma that a person carries with that, like, all of a sudden, death's coming to his door. He yeah. thought he was probably a bit safe being a doctor. There it was, right there, bang. And then the people you're dealing with, your mates, how many of your mates still to this day 
are carrying those stresses and traumas that never really got looked after. We all do. When I first came back, I knew there was something wrong in my head, but I didn't know what, and we didn't get any support back then. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't until I came back from living in Thailand for 30 years that I joined up with the Vietnam Veterans Association, and one of the guys there took me under his wing. He said, Mike, after talking to you for a few minutes, he said, I can see you've got PTSD. So he arranged for me to go and see a psychiatrist, and I saw the psychiatrist for two years. Wow. I always thought people who were feeble-minded would go to psychiatrists, but no, you don't realize sometimes the trauma that you've been through and what effect it's had on you until you sit down and start talking about it. And I was very reluctant to talk to him at first, but he drew me out. He was a fantastic doctor. And by the time I finished, one day he joked with me, he said, Mike, I don't need to see you anymore. You're more sane than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Anyway, look, I want to tell you what happened after I got back to Australia, but let's leave that for another day. Huh? Well, okay, we'll just flesh that a bit out a little bit more. So this is so when you just said that, you said you went back to Thailand, you were living over there for 30 years, you came back to Australia after this period of time in service mode, then you came back and then so you're going to tell that part of the story back here in Australia and then what got you back over there again. So you're, you've actually travelled around and stayed over there quite a lot and brought back a lovely uh, Thai wife too, I must say. I've travelled most of the world. The only parts I haven't been to is the Americas. But yeah. I've been all over Asia. I've been all over a lot of the Middle East. I've been to all over Europe and England. And yeah, I've been to a fair bit of the world. Been to Africa, so yeah, there's a lot to tell. And so, in terms of red pilling, like as in telling people why that there is, for a fact, a military-industrial complex which you just brought up, the system is not as it seems in a lot of ways. And in in this sort of discussion, it's why you are so motivated in being active like we've been active in the last i can say i've been probably active in the last 20 years same as you Uh, even though we've just come into common law in the last few years i think you from the stories you've been telling me you've been doing this stuff ever since you left the basically yeah yeah Yeah, you've been active i wouldn't say i've been active all the time but i've certainly been well aware maybe activated in the brain maybe what i'm saying is you've been activated in the brain and you have been suspicious of what what's presented in the mainstream media enough to question it all the time and going, hang on, that doesn't correlate with my knowing of what's going on behind the scenes. And I think it's important that we record your whole story here. And if this takes us 20 or 30 hours, let's just do it because we've got to get this down for for you guys who are watching, whoever that might be. But it's... I think the fact that I did a lot of travel, I saw a lot of different styles of government. I yeah. lived in Thailand, which was a kingdom, well, a democratic kingdom, but a kingdom, oh, not yeah. yeah. I've been to other countries. I've been to China, not China itself. I've been through Hong Kong and the territories. I've been to Taiwan, Japan, Philippines, and of course, I've traveled a lot through Indonesia. So I've seen various forms of government. And I'll tell you some funny stories about my time in the Philippines and how I came to live in Thailand. But basically, all of that experience, especially going over to the UK and seeing how things were there and realised they had as just a big, as much a problem as we had in Australia. Well, I wasn't really aware of it at the time, but later on, it all came back to me. So I think this is all the basis of why I do what I do today. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Talk about getting an early red pill. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, all right, that's great. That's our first one. Let's uh, let's keep going. Let's do more of these, as many as we can. Now, squeeze more out of you while you're still breathing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope I do. Yeah. Right, thank you, and yeah, I look forward to the next chat. See you all again. Cheers. If you're enjoying the Bloody Aussie Battler podcast, please consider donating to help keep us going. You can donate just once or make it a monthly donation. Any amount is welcome. To donate, go to our website at www.thebloodyaussiebattler.com and click on Donate.